Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venueland, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. Our adventure today takes us to Oakland. From Run DMC in the early 80s to Nelson Mandela to Stevie Wonder, Jimmy Fox, Lionel B has seen it all. He's the director of operations and co-founder of Bay Area Productions. Nearly four decades as an entertainment executive, uh, we're talking booking, negotiating contracts, concert budgets, creating, developing concepts. So much to talk about today. Lionel, thanks for making the time for us. All right, guys. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Hey, first, for, for somebody who has never heard of Bay Area Productions, give us the, the brief overview of, of what you guys do. Well, um, Bay Area Productions is a company located in Oakland, California, and um, we are an African-American-owned company business, and we produce concerts, and we produce concerts in the urban space, mostly Black artists, R&B music, um, hip-hop, comedy, gospel, we, we've done it all, blues. So from Stevie Wonder to Ice Cube is what I like to say. <laughs> you guys, you know, did I, did I hear that uh, you guys just signed uh, Mary J. Blige hot off the Super Bowl? Well, um, my company um, is Bay Area Productions, but we joined up with um, five other African-American-owned promoters in the, in the country, and we formed an alliance called the Black Promoters Collective. So yeah, as the Black Promoters Collective, we just signed Mary J. Blige to a national tour to start in the um, third or fourth quarter of this year. That's awesome. Tell me, yeah, tell me a little bit more about the Black Promoters Collective, how that all came about. So I've been in business at Barry Productions for about 37 years, right? And so um, I've promoted a lot of urban shows, in Northern California, and I've had a few tours around the country. So there are other guys just like myself in other cities, whether it's New York, Philly, Detroit, Houston, or whatever. And so when the pandemic hit, you know, it business was was in the tank because the music business and live performances and large gatherings were the first thing to go when the pandemic hit. Right, right. So um, some of us on um, black promoters got on the phone and started discussing how could we survive during the pandemic and to make sure that, um, you know, we just put something in place that could to just ensure that once the pandemic was over, that we can come out of it. And so during those conversations, we all decided to um, come together and um, instead of buying local dates on major artists, well, why don't we buy the entire tours as a collective? Nice. And, and in that way, it would, you know, ensure our, our survival. I think that's a perfect example of kind of ingenuity out of necessity, right? That so many people have had to do during that last couple of years. You know, it's one of those things where you're, your back is up against the wall and you're like, oh, my gosh, we've got to think of a way for us to band together, come out of this stronger. But 
it's, it's such an awesome thing that that happened, you know, and, and that now you're better for it, you know, on the other side. Uh, Cause I think as you spoke to it, it allows you to book these larger tours and gives you a lot more negotiating weight uh, to kind of compete against other promoters. You know, hopefully, hopefully it's something that, you know, it's been a crazy freaking you know, couple of years for everyone, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, maybe that's a, a kind of a, a bright spot out of it. Would you say? Yeah, most definitely. Um, a man's natural instinct is to survive. And so when you have an entrepreneur, like, like everyone in our group is in the black promoters collective, you know, the first thought is how are we going to survive? How are we going to take care of our families and keep our businesses going? And so the best thing to do is to, is to come together. And, um, and out of it, I think that there is a um, cultural significance to us coming together because as black promoters, we are often the ones that discover these artists, the black artists, or promote them first. And then when they get a little larger, sometimes the big rock and roll promoters will come along and notice them and, and then offer them big money and take them away. And so then we're left in the lurch as to say, well, wow, what do we do now? And so, you know, back in the day um, when the record labels were stronger, new new black artists would emerge so we'd have the opportunity to just jump on the next thing and jump on the next thing because we're part of the culture um that the that the music is servicing but now that the labels are basically gone away or not as important and relevant as they were before the pool of talent that's out there is is what it is and so you know we have to fight for our share of it and that's what we're doing but just historically, we've always been the first ones to, you know, um, promote Janet Jackson and, and, you know, Mary J, Maxwell, Lauren Hill and Jill Scott and on and on and on. So um, now we're in a position to compete and get back in, in the business with those artists. Lionel, one thing I've seen you talk about is, you know, like the Stevie Wonder. Right. And one of the great things that he does is I think, you know, he has a requirement that like 25 percent, I believe it is, of his dates have to be uh, or, or at least of the revenue needs to go to black promoters. Uh, is that how did that come about? And isn't it, is that something that you'd like to see more artists do? Yeah, Stevie is a very conscious black man. And, you know, he's a part of the civil rights movement. And um, I think he recognized inequities that are happening in the music business and on the concert side of it. And he wanted to make sure that black promoters were able to get a piece of his show. So in the past, um, he's made sure that for most of these dates that um, there's an African-American promoter or minority promoter, you know, and that's women as well, you know, are involved in um, his concert performances. And I think that that's admirable. And so, you know, you have the, we are the world and the, and the kumbaya that a lot of artists preach, right? But on the business side, maybe they're just not aware that they can do that, that they can yeah. they can make that happen. It, it's happened to some degree with with Chris Rock as well, um, and there um, and then. But there there are there are a number of artists that recognize the black promoters that started them, and and they continue to do business with them. So I will say that. So it's not all the African American artists, but um, a number of the major ones are then bought out by the big rock and roll promoters. And 
they might not be aware that they could say, you know what, I want to carve out some business for the black promoters. Well, I think that's great that he, you know, does that. And, and like you said, the artist has a lot, especially someone on that level that are, that are, you know, like a Stevie wonder or, you know, not doesn't have to be that level, but they have a lot of weight in that power and, you know, to negotiate that and they can go to the promoter and say, this is, you know, I'm happy to work with you, but this is how that relationship is going to work, you know? And, and they think to your point, sometimes maybe artists, in their personal lives, maybe pursue a certain cause and are passionate about it. But then when it maybe comes to the business size, and maybe this is a bit of a generalization, but, you know, they might be like, you know, this is the business and, you know, it will kind of take care of itself. But I, you know, I hope as we all spoke to that it does become a little more intentional going forward and, you know, allows people to compete in a more equitable way on a national scale. But I think the Black Promoters Collective also helps with that. You know, I think that's that's an awesome thing because it's something that you're you're using the power of the many to kind of uh, go up against these promoters that, you know, maybe do have more resources. Well, you know, I don't even look at it as competing against them. It's just us doing what we do naturally. What we've grown to to know naturally is that, you know, we know how to communicate with our community we know how to reach out to our community. We have a relationship in, in all these markets around the country with our community. And so um, we're just given the opportunity to, to execute all these wild and crazy ideas that we might have in order to sell tickets. And at the end of the day, we're in the ticket selling business and the customer service business. And um, um, we care about our community. And you know, I'm just afraid that sometimes artists sign up with groups and organizations that are not connected to the black community, nor do they care about the black community. They basically use, um, they take the money of the black community, but doesn't, they don't service it well. So, you know, we're about, you know, there'll be some charity components to what we do and, and just supporting our culture. And, um, if you look at the history of the music business, um, black people have created most of what American, popular American music is. So if you want to talk about the blues, you want to talk about jazz, reggae, hip hop, R&B, gospel, you know, that's- that. Rock and roll. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. And how could- yeah, rock Chuck and Berry roll. out there shredding. <laughs> Chuck Berry, Little Richard. And so yeah. those are the prominent genres of music in America. And we, as a people, created that. And um, unfortunately, we haven't been in the majority of of, of being able to profit from it. So it's like we own land with gold on it and someone else is mining the gold and keeping the money. Yeah. Well, Lionel, you know, it's it's quite, you know, a career you've had in this industry. We talked about nearly 40 years, right? Hard to believe it It comes comes and goes real fast. But you and I have, have something in common both uh, around 15 years old, uh, wanted to be DJs and spent a ridiculous amount of time in record stores. Yes. Take us back to those early days in Oakland when uh, mom's giving you some money to, uh, to buy, some, buy some records. So there was this um, record store in East Oakland called the House of Music. And my mom used to take me there and my mom loved music. She always played music around the house. And so 
Uh, my mom would take me to House of Music and we would, um, she would allow me to buy three records, uh, the, the, the 45s. Yeah, yeah. I can remember yeah. those. And so, you know, I would buy those songs and I'd play them over and over and over. I had a record player in my bedroom. But just the love of music, my mom and my aunts and uncles and all their friends and um, even my father, he um, had a love of jazz. And so music was always a part of my life. Uh, my father's jazz collection was pretty deep. It was a, it was a rather large one. And um, so just loving music, growing up in Oakland, you know, Oakland culturally was musically rich. Um, you know, you had like Sly and the Family Stone was here and Larry Graham and Graham Central Station. And then, you know, the Whispers were here and um, there are a lot of others. And then right across the Bay in San Francisco, was a large rock and roll community in the Haight-Ashbury and Bill Graham and all that. So the Bay Area was just culturally rich in that way. And then you mix all that with the with the the Flower Children and you mix that up with the Black Panthers and you mix that up with the Hell's Angels culture and then the Oakland Raiders. And so you have all these different cultural phenomenons all meeting together in at, at, at one time. And so it, it reflected in the music and in the culture um, in Oakland. So, um, you know, that's that's where the love began. It began in home with my father and uh, my mom taking me to record stores. And so and then your your uncle introducing you to the concert business, right? Well, um, what my uncle actually did was um, he owned a nightclub and um, in Oakland. And it was a, a small nightclub, held a couple hundred people had a, you know, small dance floor that could maybe hold 30, 40 people. And um, he he knew of my love of music. And um, I, I wanted to be a DJ growing up on the radio because I thought they were the coolest guys. Used to listen to KDIA radio in Oakland. <laughs> and um, my uncle actually hired me at 15 years old to be a DJ at his nightclub. And so I'd have oh, to man. dress up like an adult. And... <laughs> And, uh, you know, I had a little Afro and the whole thing, and, but I had to dress up like an adult and um, go into his nightclub on Friday and Saturday nights. He paid me 50 bucks a night and I would DJ. That's good money. Yeah. Yeah, it was real good money for a 15 year old. So you're, you're there and, you know, when you're you're getting exposed to, you know, uh, uh, dances and, and putting together your own events. And at this point, you're kind of, you know, like starting off at a very small level, things like like renting out a cafeteria for a dance, right? Right. Yeah, so after working in my Uncle Shadrach's club, I want to shout out to him. He's, he's, he's going to heaven now. I, um, I, I wanted to, um, well, actually what happened was um, I was on the football team at Oakland High School, and um, I was a junior, and um, we were playing for the championship in football. We were an undefeated team. We were 9-0 and at the time. We were playing against Skyline High uh-huh. School, who was um, – they were eight wins and one tie, so we're both undefeated. <laughs> Love and, how we remember those. We all oh, remember yeah. those details, right? Oh, most definitely. So you had a 9-0 and team and an eight-win eight, eight win and one tie team going against each other for the championship. So my buddy Richard, Richard Dowdy had a – in his basement was a finished basement with a bar. So we decided to throw a victory party at his house. And, you know, we planned this victory party before we even played in the championship game. 
and <laughs> which was you know looking it into fruition you're like yeah, exactly it's gonna happen. we know we know i, I yeah. remember the head the, the head cheerleader um regina goodwin said to me um i'm gonna order the cake for the party now are you sure you want to put 10 and 0 on the cake and i go hell yeah we're not losing <laughs> so <laughs> that night we win the game we win the game i think it was 13 to 6 or something and um, we go to Richard's house and we have a big party. And um, God, you know, you can go to jail for what happened that night. Cause um, we were, um, the, 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 the basement was packed. We were, we had cases of champagne, chilled and beer. And we had those little clear party cups and we're selling drinks for a dollar a drink. And, um, but not, nothing got out of hand. Everyone had a good time. We want, you know, we were celebrating the victory of going undefeated. And that was really my introduction into throwing a party. So uh, Richie and I had a, a disagreement about how the money should be split up at the end. So we, you know, we came to a settlement. But I knew that I brought all those people there because I was on the football team. So I decided that I'm going to try another party. And I hooked up with one of my best friends, Mike Mitchell. And we went and found this girl who went to an all girls high school and we wanted her to invite all her friends. And we rented out the cafeteria of um, Merritt Junior College in Oakland, Oakland Hills. And we threw our first party and we profited $900. And I thought that that was hitting the lottery. I love how your first, your first settlement it's basically the same as every settlement ever since right, then. Right. <laughs> you had a you had a money dispute. It's like ah, I think this money should have gone here. I mean, that was like your first, uh, you know, dipping your toe in the water for the first time, and here you are. <laughs> you know, it like was cool. settlement is a settlement. Yeah, it, it just let me know that you know what I'm. You know, I I was voted most popular in high school, so I knew a lot of people at other schools from playing sports, and you know, you just printed those invitations and, and invited people to the party. So Lionel, how do we get from a kid throwing a, a party in a in a basement to you know uh, the point where it's June of nineteen eighty four, and you are on the very uh, cutting edge of the popularity of Run DMC and presenting a, a Run DMC show? So I'm going to tell you how that happened. There was a DJ named Doctor Funk that DJed a lot of our popular parties for the high school and younger people's enjoyment in the Bay Area. And so at one of my parties that I was promoting, he played a song from Run DMC and it was called, um, It's Like That and That's The Way It Is. And I liked the song and the song was played on the radio and it was a hot song. And so I wanted to promote Run DMC at one of my dance parties. So I, I was just trying to figure out how to do it. So I spoke to a friend of mine her name was Cynthia Alexander. She worked at, a, at, at Rainbow Records. It was a record store in downtown Oakland. And, uh, and uh, she said to me, I, can, I know someone that knows Run DMC. And so she introduces me to a guy named Roger Clayton in Los Angeles. And Roger was a DJ who ran this organization called Uncle Jam's Army. Uncle, Uncle Jam's Army, okay. Uncle Jam's Army. And Uncle Jam's Army were like the West Coast version of the Wu-Tang Clan. Okay. All right. Okay. So they were a group of DJs and rappers, and but they were party promoters. And Same in thing. Uncle Jam's Army was Egyptian Lover, Rodney O and Joe Cooley. Yes. 
DJ Pooh, and Roger, who was Uncle Jam. And they had a couple of hits out. Um, Uncle Jam's Army did, Dollar Freak. But Egyptian Lover, you know, was banging in L.A. I mean, he he was, you know, he was the L.A. He was one of the first L.A. rappers. And um, and DJ Pooh wrote the movie Fridays. Um, oh, and then there was the L.A. Posse. They were also in the Uncle Jam's Army. They were the guys who produced a couple of LL Cool J albums. So you had all those talented people in that group. So anyway, Roger drives up to meet me and he says, look, I can bring you Run DMC. Let's promote the show together. And he said, I promote them already in LA. And so that's how I met him. And so we promoted our first show in June of, of um, June of 1984 at this place called the um, Richmond Auditorium. And um, that was my first concert performance. And I went, I like this. Yeah. You get bit by, I mean, you obviously got bit by the bug a little bit with those right. parties, but I'm sure it was like seeing everything on this scale. It must have just been like eye opening and like this, I got to do more of these. Yeah. And ask me how much they made that night. How much did they make that night? <laughs> Run DMC was paid $1,500. No. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Things are a little different now. <laughs> yeah. The next time I saw them, they were getting like like forty or fifty thousand. Yeah, I bet. I bet that because yeah. it was a couple of years later. Yeah. Not too long after that, they were on stage at Live Aid, right? So, exactly. Exactly. So you know, I mean, here we go. You know, right? Because this this kind of is now now things are things are rocking for you, and you're you're promoting. You're there on the West Coast. So's another guy, Bill Graham. Right. So instead of instead of uh, 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 looking at, at you as competition, he needed to stuff out. Bill Graham thought, I want to work with this guy. Talk to me about how you, you first met Bill Graham. OK, so I, I first met him when I was in uh, my first year of college. There was a seminar. It's called So You Want to Be in the Music Business. And that was the name of the seminar. And so um, I went to the seminar, my buddies and I, my um, partners, actually. And Bill was there and with Herbie Herbert, who's the manager of Journey at the time. And there were a couple other people on this panel. And they just talked about the music business, all aspects of it. And Bill talked about the concert promotion side of it. And so um, he did something that was remarkable. He said, um, here's my office number. And he said, on Monday from 12 to 5, I will take phone calls from any of you that have questions. So I took him up on it and I called him up on Monday and yeah. I, I talked to him and I asked him questions and, and I said, well, Mr. Graham, here's one question. I said, you know, um, it's, it's been said that you have a monopoly on the business. No one else can, you know, promote shows here. And he said, well, I don't have a monopoly. I can't stop you from renting the Oakland auditorium or the Paramount theater. He says, but I can't help it if artists want to work for me because I do a good job. Right. And so technically that was not a monopoly. I, I remember, you know, studying that in, 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 in junior high. So we had a nice conversation. So um, I actually then saw him a year or two later at a Prince concert and I approached him and I, I, I said, Mr. Graham, I'd love to talk to you. And he says, about what? <laughs> <laughs> And I said about the business, like, I really want to talk. He says, if I had, 
if, if I talk to everyone and wanted to talk to me about the business, I'd never, um, I'd never have time to do anything. <laughs> and so at that same Prince concert, I see him inside. I had floor seats, right? And I, I see him inside and I walk up to him. I said, hey, I, I really want to talk to you. And he says, hey, dig yourself, man. Don't you see that I'm in the, I'm working right now? You know, and so, uh, you know, he kind of scolded me, right? So anyway, um, I didn't see him for another year or two. And at that time, Run DMC blew up. And they became this arena-sized act. They had played on the Fresh Fest, which was the first rap tour known to in American history. They played on the Fresh Fest in 1984 and 85. Well, in 1986... At that point, they were ready to headline their own tour. And because I promoted them, I, I said to Russell Simmons' office, on Lior Cohen, who's now the head of um, YouTube Music, I said to Lior Cohen, who ran the Rush Management, it wouldn't be fair for you to play this market without me. I started them here. And he said, I'm going to put you together with Bill Graham's office, and you guys can work on this show together. And... Um, I wasn't a full partner, but they they paid me money to work on the show with them. And that's how I met Bill Graham. Um, we played Run DMC in June of 86, and they came back in August of 86 at the Oakland Coliseum, sold out both shows. Oh, my gosh. So, Lionel, you're there and, you know, obviously uh, come a long way from that $1,500 <laughs> payment for Run DMC. But you're working with Bill Graham Presents, right? So all of a sudden now, you know, you've got this this opportunity that probably, if I read right, come, came your way where Bill Graham looks like maybe he could he could have taken over, you know, your, your production company at that point. But you kind of decided to continue doing your own thing. Yeah, so when I met him, he offered... To, to bankroll us. And we took him up on the offer. I, by the way, that, that um, when he made the offer, it was at the second run DMC show. And so I, I um, waited two weeks to call him. And my partner at the time was, Hey, we should call him. And I said, no, we got to make him wait two weeks. He said, why? <laughs> I said, yeah. because I don't want him to think we're desperate. Yeah. Even though I, I was sweat. desperate, <laughs> you know, yes. but that's, a, that's what an Oakland dude would do. You know, an Oakland guy would be like, no, nah, I'm going to make him wait two weeks, you know? And so when I called him, Bill said, um, what took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> so I was right, okay? Um, but yeah, he offered us a deal that he would bankroll the concerts and we split it 50-50. And so um, first couple of shows were shaky. He said, look, take your time. Don't. I think you're in a hurry to do something. Just pick the right thing and it'll be okay. And so as things got successful and we started promoting a lot of these rap concerts because, you know, he didn't do that and he didn't understand the urban space as much. He offered us an opportunity to come to work for him, which is what any guy like him would want you to do. But I turned him down. I said, Bill, if I come to work for you, I'll then become you. I said, I want to stay in Oakland and I want to yeah. be around the people and walk the streets and, you know, and keep my, basically keep my mojo is what I was doing. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what an opportunity that came your way and for you to have the, uh, uh, the guts to, you know, keep on rocking on your own. And, and from here, right, you kind of start expanding from, from rap to comedy 
and then music, you know, uh, some some other uh, acts. So talk to me about, you know, uh, the kind of the transition there for you. Yeah. Um, so I want to be clear about something. When you say I was on my own, we still continued our partnership. You had, you had some good people you were working with, some, some great yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, Bill and I continued our partnership, but I didn't want to be under his umbrella. And I, I just wanted to, um, which is probably a mistake because I might have been a partner when they sold the company. <laughs> 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 Even if I was a limited partner, I mean, you know, that would have been good. They they made out pretty well. Yeah. So um, from there, working with Bill, it allowed me to basically do what I wanted to do. And so um, I, I started promoting comedy shows and um, people like Paul Mooney and Martin Lawrence and Damon Wayans and um, Robert Townsend. Those were some of the early artists that we um, promoted in the comedy space. And so there was a guy, Tony Spires, who founded this thing called the, the Bay Area Black Comedy Competition. And in his second year, my partner and I were able to uh, make a deal with him where we came together to promote the this, we call it for short, the Black Comedy Competition. And then there was a gentleman named Marcus King who was promoting his own comedy room. So all of us came together. We got involved with the comedy competition. And the first year that we, um, that we were involved, Mark Curry, the actor comedian won. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, Jamie Foxx won the comedy competition. People like Chris Tucker performed in the competition. D.O. Hughley took second place in the competition. <laughs> so, you know, yes. that's how we got introduced to those guys. And we started promoting yeah. them on tour. And so for 18 years that Jamie Foxx toured the country, I was his promoter through the Oscar through, you know, sold out shows in multiple theaters all over the place. So, but that all started with the relationship with Bill Brandt. So tell me about one of the great shows that you were involved with, or events, I should say, uh, bringing Nelson Mandela to Oakland Coliseum. So it was technically Bill Graham brought him because, you know, someone, it would take someone on, on of his magnitude to, sure. um, to produce an event like that at Oakland Coliseum. But what happened was Nelson Mandela was freed from prison and he wanted to come to America and thank America for supporting him and helping him. But he had no plans on coming to the Bay Area. Well, if we know our history, it was the dock workers in San Francisco who first decided that they wouldn't unload crates and um, freight, I should say, from South Africa. So that sort of began the embargo. It, it started right here in the Bay Area that there was a South African embargo economically and that we are not gonna do business with you. And to try to put economic sanctions on them because of their apartheid system. So I believe that Harry Belafonte and a few others invited Bill Graham to come to the African National Congress office in DC to, to plead his case on why Nelson Mandela shouldn't just go to New York or Chicago or whatever, but he needed to come to the Bay Area because we were the ones. It was our activism here. Like I said, home of the Black Panthers and the, and the Hells Angels and the, and the, and the Flower Children and the Haight-Ashbury and all that, UC Berkeley. It was that whole movement 
that sparked the idea to have an embargo against South Africa. And so Bill went to the East Coast and he pled his case. And so Mandela came to the Bay Area. It's, that was his last stop. And Bill called awesome. us up and, and said, we're going to involve you in that. And so we were in the room um, with all these prominent politicians and activists in planning that event. So it was one of the proudest moments of my life. And I sat maybe 50 feet directly in front of Mandela in the pit of the stadium at Oakland Arena looking at Nelson Mandela. I'm getting chills hearing the story. Did you ever, I mean, did you ever have that moment in your career where you kind of were able to step back and pinch yourself and be like, wow, I really, really kind of got to this point? Well, you know, they say when you're in the midst of doing it, it's hard to right. sometimes to have a, yeah. a, a certain perspective. But uh, I've had great moments. You know, that Run DMC concert at the Oakland Coliseum was awesome. I mean, Stevie Wonder at Madison Square Garden, I was a partner on that. And um, Prince was in the audience and he came up and he played. Oh. He played with Stevie. He played a song with him. Oh, um, my gosh. And, uh, yeah. Um, Tony Bennett performed that night too. He came up and sang a song. Oh my gosh. You're amongst uh, Prince uh, fans here. More so Dave. Dave is, uh, he's like the all time, all time for Dave. Yeah. Yeah. He loves it. I I, I saw Prince. uh, I I used to like those, those smaller shows. So I saw him at the Warfield. I mean, um, I I saw him at the Warfield theater in San Francisco. There's like 2,500 seats. One of them things that they put on sale at four o'clock in the afternoon. And it sells out. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah. So I, I was there for that, and I, and I saw him at the world famous Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco wow. at three great. o'clock in the morning. The show started at midnight, but I got the I got the tip that um he wasn't going on till three. So I didn't <laughs> that's, show it. That's good. It's good to have friends in the industry. <laughs> right. Yeah. So everyone's there at midnight. But anyway, um, yeah, I've been involved in some wonderful things. Um, you know, Jamie Foxx on tour. And then watching him win the Oscar, because I was his promoter, I was kind of his shadow. I was one of the shadow managers because I'm always, Marcus King is his manager and Jamie King. And I would always be yelling advice to them every day on the telephone. So, but watching him win the Oscar and then we're five blocks away in a nightclub and maybe hour and a half later, he walks through the door with the Oscar. That was a great moment. Yeah. Lionel, you know, obviously uh, uh, an amazing uh, run of shows that continues, right? And, and talk to me a little bit um, as we get ready to wrap things up here, but talk to me a little bit about your, your promotional philosophy, because one of my favorite quotes from you is, you know, about, you know, kind of talking about knowing how to promote a show to the community. And um, you, you said, quote, we talk differently, we walk differently, we act differently, we respond differently. Talk about the importance of knowing that audience and how to market to them. Well, you know, earlier we talked about the fact that Black people created all these genres of music, you know, and that that just means that, that culturally we see things differently. I mean, every culture is special in its own way. And so I'm just speaking about what's special about our culture, about Black culture. And so understanding it, that culture, coming from that culture, being engulfed in it, appreciating it, loving it, it gives me an inherent advantage when it comes to selling tickets to the culture. 
right? So, you know, like today there's a lot of digital marketing and there's a lot of, you know, fancy technology and all that stuff. And, you know, you can hire people to do that part of it, but the knowledge of your people, of how we walk, how we talk, how we think, what moves us, having that knowledge inherently is an advantage and it's, and it's important and it shouldn't be downplayed. It shouldn't be overlooked. And I think that artists are respecting like, um, they've respected my company Bay Area Productions for years for having it, but in the Bay Area, right? In a few places around the country, but that is now transferred that they're respecting the promoters in the Black Promoters Collective because they had that same that that same passion and knowledge in their markets. And so now we are taking that and we're taking it around the country. So it's just important that um, I, I think that Black people in, in, in this country have been taken advantage of and have been used and abused to certain degrees. And, and, and that transfers into the music business as well. I mean, look at all the Black artists that have been ripped off and um, of, their, of their royalties. Um, they, they're down on their luck and the manager gives them something to sign. Might not have been educated enough to know what they were dealing with. Some didn't even know what publishing were. They wrote the song, they get a $500 advance. And the song generates millions of dollars, you know? Yep. So, yeah. you know, it's, um, it's just being from the culture and by the culture is important. Well, that's, that's why I, you know, we were so excited to have you on today to talk about, you know, the Black Promoters Collective and which uh, people can find that uh, the website for that uh, online uh, where you can learn more about all the members because there's a, a great team that you're there with. But speaking of great teams, Bay Area Productions, what are you guys doing in, in 2022? I know you guys ha- are up to uh, have, have a couple of big tours on the road. Yeah, so um, Bay Area Productions, we... Um, I still have a relationship with the Bill Graham office in San Francisco, and it's it's now it went from SFX to Clear Channel Entertainment. Now it's Live Nation. So we we promote a Memorial Day music festival here in the Bay Area called Stone Soul Concert. Um, I brought that to their venue, I don't know, 15 years ago. And so we've been producing it there at the Concord Pavilion, at the Live Nation venue. And um, so that's what we have going on this summer. Other than that, with the Black Promoters Collective, um, we have Maxwell on tour, a great R&B singer, and with Anthony Hamilton and Joe. And that's traveling the country for 24 cities. And um, yes. we, have the, we have the new edition tour that's on the road for 30 cities. coming. That's to a, a hot city ticket home. right now. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's a hot ticket. And um, we have big sellouts in Atlanta and Detroit and New York. And um, it'll be coming up to the West Coast in a couple of weeks. So that's with Charlie Wilson and uh, uh, the reunion of Jodeci, which is one of the unheralded R&B groups. And then we have a string of dates that we're promoting with Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight. I mean, just say that out loud. Patti LaBelle. Wow, and Gladys I know, right? Right. <laughs> and uh, Stephanie Mills is on those shows. And, you know, so uh, we're busy. And um, like I said, we signed Mary J. Blige. And so we're looking for a, a tour towards the end of the year with her right off of her Super Bowl performance. And, you know, I think that um, some of the artists in, in this genre in the urban space are taking notice of what we're doing in the concert business. And so we'll see what happens in the future. Well, I'm so excited to see what happens because it's been an amazing adventure and we, we appreciate you sharing with us today. Hey, before I let you go, 
I want to hit you with our fast five. It's five quick questions. Just looking for your, your instant, immediate response. First up, what was your very first concert? Uh, Run DMC, June 1984. There you go. How about your very favorite concert? To promote or to view? To view, just as a fan. Oh, God. I don't want to get in trouble. But um, maybe <laughs> maybe Parliament Funkadelic. I, you know, I saw the Mothership oh, Land. Man. And, yes. and they recorded they recorded Parliament live album in Oakland and L.A., so I was there for that. That is a great oh, album. Awesome. I love that yes, album. Yes, it is. Uh, how about your favorite place to eat in Oakland, and what do you get? Well, my favorite place to eat was Flint's Barbecue. They're no longer there. And then uh, Mexicali Rose, they're no longer there after 70 years in business or so. Oh. And then there was a place called Lady Esther's. And she's no longer there, even though her daughters are still cooking. But yeah, those were the places to eat in Oakland. All right. How about one artist you'd love to book a show with? Who's on your bucket list? Wow. Because I've worked with Stevie and Beyonce and Jay-Z and all these guys, Lionel Richie even. Um, I guess it would have been Prince. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's what, or, well, I'll take that back. Prince would be second. It would have been Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, I used to, someone introduced me to him, and I used to talk to him about trying to book him, but it never happened. You did a bunch with Janet, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, the Rhythm Nation tour, we promoted eight shows, Bill Graham and us in this market, and did a great job. So all in Northern California. All right. Last question for you. What is your theme song? So, Lionel, you get your own TV show. Cameras follow you around all the time. What is the song that plays over the opening credits to the Lionel B show? <laughs> now, that's a hard one. <laughs> I'd have to go with some Oakland funk, and I'd, I'd say um, uh, two shorts, life is too short. There you go. <laughs> uh, uh, Lionel, if somebody wants to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way uh, for them to, uh, to find you? What do you want to plug? Uh, uh, Bayer Productions, uh, websites, uh, anything like that? Yeah, so the Black Promoters Collective website is something. We're, we're redoing the um, um, Bay Area Productions website as, as we speak, actually. And, um, yeah, I can be reached at um, Lionel B, B-E-A, uh, Lionel B, B-A-P, like Bay Area Productions, Lionel B, B-A-P at AOL.com. So, but Black Promoters Collective, um, look for us because it's not just business that we're conducting. We we want to be culturally relevant and we want to do things that, that there are other aspects of entertainment that we will be involved in. And so we want to do some groundbreaking things. So a bunch of smart people are in that group. Yeah. It's a, I mean, if you go to anyone listening, if you go to their website and look at the, the about page and see everyone that's associated, I mean, there's, there's, there's an awesome group involved. You, you among them, you know, Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. It's uh, blackpromoterscollective.com. Check it out there. And uh, Lionel, again, thanks for the time today. We really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate being on and, um, you know, you guys keep up the good work and, um, you know, let's, let's support music. You know, the pandemic's almost over and um, live shows are coming back. Amen to that. And a big thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'd love your five-star reviews so you can help others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger. And 
I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone. Adventures in Venueland is a side project of the Event and Arena Marketing Conference, a nonprofit organization bringing together people in the field of live entertainment to discuss marketing, publicity, and sales trends. Find out more at eventarenamarketing.com. Audio editing and mixing by Camille Faulkner. Design and digital advertising by Megan Ebeck. Copywriting and publicity by Samantha Marker. Guest booking and brand strategies by Paul Hooper. Guest research by Dave Rettelberger. Marketing strategies by Paul Hooper, Megan Ebeck, and Samantha Marker. Thanks for joining us. Until the next adventure.